It's been said that perspective is the ability to evaluate situations and information with respect to meaningfulness and importance. Over the next three weeks, we want to examine three perspectives of Christmas. Our aim is to see this cosmic event called the incarnation of Christ, which, by the way, splits all of human history between B.C. and A.D., and we want to see this cosmic incarnation of Christ through the eyes of the wise men, Anna and Simeon, and finally, the shepherds. So this morning, we want to see the perspective of the wise men. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the gospel according to Matthew. I want to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 in your hearing. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 12, as today we examine the perspective of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It is Matthew who tells us that following the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem in search for the child. This is the only place in all the Bible where the Magi are mentioned. Most believe they are prominent men from Persia, men who were involved in politics and religion and who occasionally dabbled in astronomy. We understand that they are about three wise men. The reason we say that is because of their three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But nobody knows with any certainty the number of wise guys in this entourage. We call them wise men, but there are oftentimes when I doubt their wisdom. They went to the existing king and asked the whereabouts of his replacement. Now, if I know anything about the first century, that's a good way to get your head chopped off. Yet that's exactly what the wise men did. They went to the capital city of Jerusalem. They gained an audience with King Herod. And they asked the question, where is he 
who's been born king of the Jews. Now, I don't know how much these wise men really knew about Jesus. The case could be made that you know a lot more about Jesus than they did. But they got one thing exactly right. Jesus is the one born king. He was not appointed king. He did not become king. He was not elected king. He was born king. He's as much king in the palace as he is in the pasture. He's as much king in heaven as he is on earth. He's as much king in the cradle as he is on the cross. He was born king. He is king whether he sits on his throne in heaven. He is king if he's lying on a manger of hay. He is king if he's playing with toys in a Bethlehem house. He is king if he's 12 years old teaching in the temple. He is king if he tells the blind to see and the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, and the dead to come back to life again. He is king when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He is king as he preaches on the seashore on the Sea of Galilee. He is king as he stands before Pontius Pilate. He is king as he stumbles and staggers through the streets of Jerusalem. He is king as he makes his way up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. He is king as he rises in pain on the cross of Calvary. He is king when he declares, it is finished to tell us die. He is king when they take his dead corpse off the cross and place him into a borrowed grave. He is king on the third day when he's raised from the dead. He is king and when he ascended to the heavens. He is king as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is king for one day he will mount his white horse he will split the eastern sky he will descend and set up his kingdom forever and ever and ever this morning I came to tell you he was born king he is king over your problems he is king over your predicaments he is king over your fears he's king over your failures he is king over your sin he is king over your past. He is king over your present. He is king over your future. He is king over your family. He is king over your marriage. He is king over your children. He is king over your grandchildren. He is king over your house. He is king over this house. He is king on your street. He is king in this community. He is king in this culture. He is king of this country. He is king of the nations. He is king of the cosmos. He is he is king of your sickness. He is king of your cancer. He is king of your worries. He is king of all kings. I came this morning just to tell you, he was born king. If the Magi get one thing right, it's simply this. Where is he who was born king? The Magi come, they ask the question to King Herod. Herod seems to be a bit disturbed. I gotta be honest with you, I am quite impressed inspired even by the travel of the Magi. Why would they come from Persia to Israel? It's not like they were believers in Jesus, at least not yet. It's not that they were Jews. They asked the question, where is the one born king of the Jews? It's not like the nation of Israel somehow posed a threat to their Persian empire. Why would they make the trip? I realized that they dabbled in the stars just a little bit. They saw a new star, and they believed that a new star signified the birth of a prominent individual. But the passage in no way indicates 
that these guys are globetrotters who just go all over the world looking for the next significant person who was born. No, there was something significant about coming to Jerusalem and coming for this one who was born king. I gotta be honest with you, I'm inspired by their travel. I often ask the question, why did they come? I guess the best answer can be found on their lips. We have come to worship him. Friend, I don't know how far you traveled to get here this morning and worship, but according to the Magi, it's worth a trip. I don't know what schedule you had to finagle. I don't know what person you had to strangle. I don't know what individual you had to drag. I don't know what you had to rework in order to make this work in your Sunday schedule. But according to the Magi, whatever trouble you went through, trip was worth it. Because this one born king is worthy of worship. This is a story that's really about worship. The word worship is mentioned three times in our passage. Verse 2, verse 8, verse 11. In fact, these wise men, they understood something important about worship. That worship is the dominant desire that drove them to the feet of Jesus. Once again... Their travel, their question, it disturbed Herod. In fact, all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. The word disturbed can better be understood as confused. Everybody was confused. Why did these guys come and visit from Persia to Israel, come to Jerusalem, ask the king the whereabouts of his replacement? Why are they seeking the Messiah? Why are they looking for the Christ child? After all, there have been 400 years of divine silence. The last prophet to speak was a man named Malachi. Since Malachi, 400 years of a divine gag order where God said nothing, where he raised up no prophet to say, thus saith the Lord. Yet in these days, something is stirring, something is happening. And these visitors from Persia have come asking the question, where is he born king? Herod didn't know what to do, but he didn't know where to turn. He got the quote-unquote experts, the high priests, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. He collected them, asked them the same question that the wise guys had asked Herod. They conferred together and quickly concluded, the answer is Bethlehem. All they had to do was look back into that great minor prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 where the prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem, are by no means least in Judah. For out of you will come the ruler, the shepherd of my people, Israel. Israel interpreted that as that when Messiah comes, he will be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's only located five miles outside of Jerusalem. And so King Herod, he uh, turns and tells that to the wise men. Now, you've got to know something about King Herod to more fully appreciate this story. By this time in his reign, Herod was a paranoid schizophrenic. He had been reigning for 30 years. He truly was a dictator. Early on, he was known for being a shrewd diplomat, a great builder of the kingdom. But later in life, he became a paranoid personality. I think part of that paranoia stemmed from the fact that he knew he was not fully Jewish. So he had never been fully embraced by the Jewish people. 
he was only half Jewish. And because of that, he was always paranoid that somebody was going to come after his power. Somebody was going to come after his throne. So by the end of his reign, he had executed more than a few of his closest family and friends simply because he was paranoid. He thought they were developing some coup to overthrow him. If King Herod lived in our day, we would do one of two things with him. Either number one, we would institutionalize him, or number two, we would elect him as a Washington politician. One of the two. That's what we would do with King Herod. Because King Herod is a paranoid personality. Can you imagine when these visitors from Persia come, they pose this question to this king, it spirals him down into a frenzy. He gets the answer that he needs, that when Messiah comes, he'll come from Bethlehem. He secretly tells the Magi, I want you to go and make a careful search for the child. When you find him, report back to me so I may go kill him. I mean, worship him because I too want to worship him. So when you go, go and make a careful search. If you find him as you think you will, then report back to me so that I can go and I can come right alongside you and worship him and give him what he deserves. I find it interesting that it's only the Magi who make the five-mile journey to Bethlehem. Only the Magi do that. These expert scribes, these biblical scholars who know the Bible backwards and forwards, they know that the Magi have come from a very long distance, and they also know that the Magi actually believe that the long-awaited Christ has been born. Yet these ones who, they know the Scripture, they can quote verses to you, they really have no interest in personally going and seeing if Christ has been born. The experts, they know the Bible, but they really don't care about Christ. Herod didn't go. You would have thought that if he was so paranoid that he would personally go, it's only five miles, that's a hop, skip, and a jump for you, and for me it's not much more for them in that day. It's only five miles for them to travel. They've gone so far, you would expect them to say, okay, it's in, it's in Bethlehem, so Herod would go, I'll, I'll make the trip with you. I'll go and check it out myself, or at the very least, to send a delegation. But Herod does none of that. He offers lip service but he has no real interest in living for this Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people like the quote-unquote experts. And I know a lot of people like King Herod. I know people like the experts, those scribes, those uh, chief priests, those teachers of the law. I know people who know the book. They know more verses than I know. They know more verses than you know. And even though they know the book, they really have no desire to live for the Lord. I also know people like King Herod, people who just give lip service to Christ. They know what to say. They know what would be politically correct. They know what should tumble from their lips, but they really have no desire to make life choices that reflect what they say. That's why this story of the Magi is really impressive to me. In this story, the only ones who really worship are the wise men. They're the magi. They, they're the ones. It's not the experts. 
in the scripture. It's not King Herod. Those guys, they, they don't really have an interest. They only offer lip service, but it's the Magi who go. They say, hey, we've come thus far. It's only five more miles. It's only a few more miles to Bethlehem. So they went. They followed the star until it stopped over the house where the child was. And they were overjoyed. They entered the house and they found Mary and the kingly kid. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. I want you to notice a couple of things. One, I want you to notice that Matthew makes it abundantly clear that these grown men worshiped him, not them. These wise men did not come and worship Mary and Jesus. No, they went into the house and they saw Mary, but they bowed down and worshiped him. They only worshiped Jesus. They understood that Jesus was worth the wait. Jesus was worth the trip. Jesus was worth the worship. It was their dominant desire that drove them to the feet of Jesus. They worshiped him. Also want you to notice that they entered the house and they found him. Now, I'm not intending to mess up the nativity that's under your Christmas tree. But the wise men did not go to the stable. They went to the house. By the time they arrive on the scene, Jesus is a toddler. He's somewhere between the ages of 18 months to two years of age. The reason you know that is because when Herod gets outwitted by these wise guys, he is furious. He issues a decree that all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem, two years of age and under, must be slaughtered. Theologians call this the slaughter of the innocents. That in this decree, Herod killed about 20 to 25 baby boys living in and around Bethlehem. So if you do that math, then by the time the wise men arrive, Jesus is a toddler. They're, they're staying in a Bethlehem house. And they go in and they worship him. Now, my point is not to mess up your nativity scene. Because a long time ago, I came to this conclusion. Your nativity scene is not a snapshot of the stable. It never was intended to be a snapshot of the stable. It's not intended to portray what takes place in Luke chapter 2. No, your nativity scene is to communicate, to proclaim, and to preach salvation history. That when Jesus came, everybody came to worship him. The rich, the poor. Men, women, Jews, Gentiles. When you look at your nativity scene, that's what you see. You see men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. They're all coming and they're looking right there into uh, the eyes of baby Jesus. Because your nativity scene is given to you to communicate salvation history. Now I realize I say this to you because I want you to have biblical accuracy. Look, my nativity scene looks just like your nativity scene, and the wise men are standing right beside the oxen and the donkey. And look, I know that's not biblical, but it is salvific in that it is communicating the history of salvation, that the only hope anybody has is in the Christ child. So I'm not on some kick to, to evict the wise men 
from your nativity scenes. I'm not telling you you need to go home today and just kind of boot them over and give them another spot. No, it's fine for them to stay right there. They can stay in the foyer if they want to. I don't care. But the reality is, is that biblically we know that by the time the Magi arrive, Jesus is a toddler, probably 18 months of age. They go into the house and they bow down and they worship him. These grown men, well-dressed, highly influential, prominent people of Persia, not even people of Israel, but prominent people of Persia, they come and they bow down. And in, in that Christ child, in Jesus, they see Messiah. They see the one born king. They see the one who's worthy of worship. And worship for them was a dominant desire that drove them to the feet of Jesus. It wasn't enough for them to be in the vicinity of Jesus. They had to be at the feet of Jesus. If all they wanted to do was be in the vicinity of Jesus, they would have left Jerusalem and said, hey, we gave it our best shot. He's a few miles away. That's closer than he was. Let's just, let's just chalk it up as, you know, a good old college try. We did our very best. It wasn't good enough for them to be in the vicinity of Jesus. They had to be at the feet of Jesus. And it wasn't even enough for them to be in the proper place. They had to have the proper posture. For the Magi, you don't get credit for just showing up. You don't get credit just for showing up to church. You get credit because you know you come and you say, Lord Jesus, you're the one worthy of worship. These grown men bowed down, paid homage unto the Lord, and they worshiped Christ wasn't enough for them to be in the vicinity of Jesus. They had to be at the feet of Jesus. Martha, she lived in the vicinity of Jesus. But Mary, she wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. Simon the Pharisee, he was in the vicinity of Jesus. But the woman with the really bad reputation that crashed the party and knelt down at the feet of Jesus with her tears streaming down her cheeks, now she wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. Judas lived in the vicinity of Jesus. But Peter, James, and John lived at the feet of Jesus. Matthew sees this picture of these grown men from Persia bowing down before the Christ child. And he says, worship is going to be a bookend for my gospel. If you look how Matthew wrote his gospel, here in Matthew chapter two, you find grown men the wise men, going into the house, bowing down in worship of Jesus. In the very last book of, the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, you find other grown men, the disciples, Jewish in nature. They go onto the mountain, they see the resurrected Christ, they bow down and they worship him. It's at that moment that Jesus gives them the great commission. He tells them to go into all the nations and make disciples. And so it's there that they are bowing down in worship. Matthew sees this as proper bookends for his gospel because all throughout his gospel, you find people discovering the identity of Jesus and the only appropriate response is to evoke worship from their life. Because you and I are to worship Christ. That's why we were made. That's why we were created. We were created to identify him as the Christ, to identify him as very God and very man, to know that he is the God-man who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth on a rescue mission to seek and to save us so that we may be forgiven of sin and live the abundant life that only he can provide. When you and I see Jesus, 
the only appropriate response that that should evoke is worship. We are to worship him because he is the one who is worthy of it. Whether you are male or female, the men come, the wise men. But Anna the prophetess will declare, this is redemption when she beholds Jesus. Not just men and women, but you get Jew and Gentile. The Jews come, those shepherds, they come from the hillside. They are Jewish uh, by descent. But also the wise men, the Gentiles, the Persians, they come and they declare that Jesus is Christ. In Mark's gospel, when you get to the end of the life of Jesus, it is the Roman centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. So Jesus, by his mere presence, he evokes worship from men and women, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. You can't get much richer than the wise guys, and you can't get any poorer than the shepherds. And whether you are as rich as a wise man or whether you're as poor as a shepherd, when you behold Jesus, the only appropriate response is worship. It is the apostle Paul who says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Almighty. These guys understand it's not enough to get in the vicinity of Jesus. We gotta be at the feet of Jesus because for them, worship was the dominant desire that drove them to the feet of Christ. And when they got there, they leveraged everything they had for the Lord. They didn't just say he was Lord, they showed he was Lord. They did not just declare it, they demonstrated. They gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave gold. It's the most precious commodity in that day still the most precious commodity in this day. They said, because he is king, we will give him everything. We will give him our best. He is the one born king, so we'll give him gold. I wonder at what point did baby Jesus pick up that gold and look at it and say, hey, this is the same stuff that's heavenly asphalt because heaven's streets are made of pure gold. I wonder when Jesus said that, right? But he understood that they gave the very best they could on earth. They gave him gold and frankincense, sweet-smelling fragrance used in worship because they were declaring he's the only one worthy of worship. He's the one born king. And they gave him myrrh. Myrrh is a spice that was used to properly bury someone in that day. Seems like an odd gift to give to a child. But they understood this child not only has a significant birth, but he'll also have a significant death. In John chapter 19, it's the man named Nicodemus who came earlier to Jesus under the cover of night. But he comes with Joseph of Arimathea, and together they ask, can we take the corpse of Jesus off the cross and give him a proper burial? They were given permission. They took the dead body of Jesus off the cross they prepared his body for burial. John tells us in chapter 19, Nicodemus came with 75 pounds of a myrrh mixture. 75 pounds to properly, to properly prepare the body. They, they didn't know how to embalm, but this was a way to properly prepare the body for burial. The wise men, the magi, they were declaring this one born king. His birth is significant, but so will his death. His death will be significant, for he is the one that we are to worship. They gave everything to Christ. 
their time, their travel, their schedule, their goods, their gold, their frankincense, their worship. They saw in him something that was very meaningful and something that was very important. They gave everything to the Lord. You know, I've oftentimes been told um, that God gives his church all the wealth that church needs. The problem is that sometimes we sit on our wealth, we keep it in our wallets. Sometimes we drive our wealth in our cars and trucks. Sometimes we live in our wealth in our fancy homes. Sometimes we vacation in our wealth. Now all of that, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having vehicles in a house and vacation. But there's only two things you can do with your wealth. You can either worship your wealth or you worship with your wealth. Those are only two options. For these wise guys, the Magi, they said we want to leverage everything we have to worship Christ. So the gift was not too extravagant because they knew to whom they were giving it. They gave it to the Lord. When you look at their life, I realize that these men, they were persistent in their pursuit of Christ. They were attentive to the word of Christ. They were immediate in their obedience to follow Christ. If this sermon had three points, there they are. Those are the three points, right? I mean, if this sermon had three points, what I would say to you is that when we live a life of worship, we have a persistent pursuit of Christ. Nothing will deter us. Nothing will distract us. We want to pursue him, seek after him, sacrifice for him. For these guys, they would not uh, allow anything to stop them. They pulled out all the stops. They made their way successfully from Persia to Jerusalem, then from Jerusalem, then on to Bethlehem. They were persistent in their pursuit of Christ. And they were attentive to the word of Christ. When they heard word that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, they immediately said, let's go. They, they were attentive to the very word of Christ. They're the only ones in this story who are attentive to the word of Christ. And they were immediate in their obedience to follow Christ. They would do whatever the Lord wanted them to do. In fact, when an angel warned them, do not go back to Herod, for he wants to kill this child, they went back home another route. They were immediate in their obedience. They didn't say, nah, we can't listen to that spirit of the Lord. It's just something that we ate last night. We just all had a bad dream. No, they were obedient and their obedience was immediate. When you live a life of worship, you'll be persistent in your pursuit of Christ, attentive to the word of Christ, and immediate in your obedience to follow Christ because you, like the wise men, will understand that worship is the dominant desire that drives you to the feet of Jesus. It's not enough to get in the vicinity of the Lord. You wanna be right there at his feet. You wanna be right there in that position of learning as he teaches you. You wanna be right there in that place where you cast all your cares upon him and he communicates how much he cares for you. You wanna be right there in that place of intimacy and wholeness and oneness. You wanna be right there at the feet of Jesus to declare, I'm no longer sovereign. I'm no longer in charge. I'm not the king of my life. You're the one who's king of my life for you were born king. And the only appropriate response to the one born king is to worship him. So this morning, let me just quickly ask you, what is the dominant desire of your life? 
What is the dominant desire of your life? We all have a lot of desires. Some of them good, some of them not so good, but what is the dominant desire? What's the desire that wakes you up in the morning, that drives you throughout the day? What's the desire that helps you make decisions that you make? What is the dominant desire of your life? We've asked these three questions before, but they bear repeating because they're profitable as diagnostic questions. Here are the three questions. Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? If you honestly answer those questions, it will accurately reveal with vivid color and clarity the dominant desire of your life. Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? Now, on my best days, I say Jesus, and you probably do too. But on my worst days, the answers to those questions is me. Sometimes the answer is no one else than yourself. Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? It's me, right? You think about yourself the most. Sometimes it's your spouse, maybe your children, maybe your grandchildren. Maybe it's your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your best friend, your fiance. Maybe it's your coach or your boss. I mean, stop and think about who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? If it's someone other than Jesus on your best days and your worst days, if it's somebody other than Jesus, it is a cheap imitation of the Savior. Only Jesus can fill those shoes. Only he can sufficiently be the dominant desire of your life because worship, my friend, is the dominant desire that drives you to the feet of Jesus. When you get in that spot, you can say with the hymn writer, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior art thou. If ever I've loved you, my Jesus, it's now. Friends, this morning, maybe for the first time, You need to, in humility, bow down before the Christ child. And you need to say, Lord Jesus, I'm sick and tired of being the king of my life. I'm sick and tired of being queen of my life. I I am tired. I, I, I make bad decisions. I do wrong things. Lord, I need you to forgive me. You're the one born king. I need for you to be the Lord of my life. And maybe this morning, for the first time ever in your life, you need to come forward and make public what God is doing in your heart. And you need to surrender unto him. Look, we're gonna sing a song. As soon as we start singing, If you need to trust Jesus as Savior, won't you come? But maybe you're already a Christian. But you know what? As a Christian, I can testify, and I think you can as well. It is easy for my dominant desire to slip off the Lord. It's easy for that to happen. Life happens. Demands happen. Responsibilities happen. Busyness happens. And when life takes place and it can easily distract us, get us off point, it can easily creep in so that a a minor desire becomes a major desire. And maybe on this day, you just need to be reminded as we come into this Christmas season, you know what? 
the only one who ought to be the dominant desire of my life is King Jesus. And maybe this morning you just need to come and kneel here at the altar. And once again, just kneel down and say to the Lord in humility, I'm sorry for taking you off the prominent spot in my life. Today, I commit myself to you afresh. Today, I, I, I just give you my life. Maybe you're coming to pray, not for yourself, but maybe it's for a friend. Maybe you're coming to pray with a friend because friends bring friends to Jesus and friends bring friends down here to the altar to pray. Maybe you're praying for your son or your daughter, maybe your spouse, maybe an extended family member that you know you're gonna see in just a couple of weeks. Maybe God's just laying that cousin or that aunt, maybe it's that uncle, laying that person on your heart. And you just wanna come and pray for them. Maybe you're here today and you need to join this church this church that makes much of Jesus in our giving and our going, and you want to be part of this church, friend, if God is calling you, we want you to plant deeply here. Don't let anything stop you. Because we know that Jesus is the one born king. He's worthy of our worship. He is the dominant desire of our life. It drives us. He drives us to the feet of Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We pray that you will move, you will stir, that we will respond in obedience and help our obedience to be quick, complete, and thorough. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.